Many people regard cats as mysteries. Part of that is cats attach themselves to humans later in our evolutionary history than dogs, so we're still trying to figure them out. One thing we do know is that they have evolved from wild creatures to pets to our beloved fur babies. I personally am owned by two of them. Dr. Jonathan Lossus is an evolutionary biologist, herpetologist, and professor at Washington University in St. Louis. He's also very much a cat connoisseur. In fact, there is a, quite a lot of, that we've learned about where cats come from, why they do what they do, and what the future may hold. He's also my guest to talk about loving cats. I'm Steve Fisher, and this is Life Slices. Let's start with our typical usual question. Who is Jonathan Lossus? Jonathan Lossus is a scientist who works at Washington University in St. Louis. He spent his life studying how lizards adapt to the environment. Lizards? Why lizards? It all started when I was a little boy and I was fascinated with dinosaurs. And from there, it transformed to living reptiles. A key event in my life was convincing my mother to get a baby caiman as a pet. A caiman is a small type of alligator. I, I had one. You had a caiman, too? I, I had one as, as a kid, yes. My ah. sister, sister went to spring break in Florida and sent me one. Well, all right, then. We're kindred spirits. They're nasty little creatures, but fascinating. And it just kindled my interest in reptiles in general. And so I ended up being a scientist studying lizards, which turned out to be a really good organism to understand how evolution works and how species adapt to the environment. What is an evolutionary biologist? An evolutionary biologist is someone who studies evolution, how it works. And there's kind of two flavors to be very dichotomous in a way. Some are people who study what happened in the past. They dig up fossils or they look at the DNA to make inferences about how evolution occurred back in time to produce the species that live today. On the other hand, other scientists, other evolutionary biologists, study what's happening now, how species are changing moving forward. And particularly with this changing world, it's very important to understand how species can adapt to, say, global warming or other changes. So which species are adapting the best? Well, that's a tough question which no one has asked me before, I'll stick with my expertise on lizards and tell you that it varies. There are some lizards that are getting wiped out by this, that they have very specific requirements. And as the world changes, they're not adapting and they're becoming rare, even going extinct. Yet there are other species who are doing great, who are actually doing better as the world gets warmer and as humans uh, clear down natural habitat and turn it into parking lots. And humans are going to disappear and the lizards will take over. The lizards and the cats will take over. The, awesome. I, I like it. Although I don't know how they'll get along. Yeah, you got to have a food chain. Somebody's got to eat somebody. You recently wrote an, an essay for the conversation on how cats first finagled their way into human hearts and homes thousands of years ago. What drew you to cats when you've been studying lizards? That's a great question. And as a little boy, I was interested in dinosaurs, but I also fell in love with cats. And the reason is that we went out when I was five to the local animal shelter to adopt a stray cat for my father, who was a great cat aficionado. And so we got Tammy, and ever since I've been crazy about cats. However, it never occurred to me to do anything scientifically with cats uh, for two reasons. One is I wanted to go out into nature to study animals as they exist in the environment, and anyone who has tried to follow a cat around to see what it does realizes just how impossible that is. <laughs> as soon as a cat figures out what you're doing, which is they figure that out right away, 
they quickly give you the shake. They disappear into the bushes or whatever, and they're gone. And so cats didn't seem to be a good subject for a researcher. Secondly, I was under the impression that there really wasn't much interesting cat science being conducted by anyone. And by cat science, I mean domestic cats, not lions and tigers and so on. Mm -hmm. So it just didn't seem to be a good pursuit for my scientific interests. I, I continued my love of cats. I petted them whenever I could. But I went off and studied lizards as I established myself as a scientist. Then about 10 years ago, I suddenly came to learn that actually there is a lot of interesting cat science being conducted, that scientists are studying cats in the same way that I study lizards and other people study birds and elephants and hippos and so on, using all the latest techniques, DNA sequencing, video analysis, isotope analysis, and so on. And in fact, there is a, quite a lot of that we've learned about where cats come from, why they do what they do, and what the future may hold. And so then I had what I thought was a brilliant idea. I would teach a freshman class called The Science of Cats. The idea was I would lure into, into the class students who like cats, and then I would teach them how we study nature just using cats as the vehicle. And so that's how I, I developed this class. It was a great success. We learned all kinds of fun things, and, and many of the students ended up becoming science majors. And so from that, I said, well, why don't I write a book on this about the science of cats? And so that's what I did. A book came out in March called The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your, to your Sofa. And my conversation article was then based on that book. In your article, and then I'm assuming in your book, you talk about how cats, or domestic cats, were evolved from the African wildcat. How did you make that connection? There's two reasons that, that we know that. The first is... The African wildcat looks very similar to a domestic cat. That if you saw an African wildcat walk through your backyard, you wouldn't say, what's that African wildcat doing in, in Hoboken? You'd say, what a cool looking cat. I've never seen one quite like it. So they do look quite similar. And now more recently, scientists have looked at their DNA, and that shows clearly that domestic cat DNA is very similar to African wildcats. And so the African wildcat was the species from which the domestic cat was, was domesticated. So how did so many different types of cats evolve? I always thought, by the way, cats were evolved from Isaac Newton because they're always testing gravity. There is a bit of that to them for sure. So there are now many different types of cats and they've these different types and we're talking about domestic cats, different breeds, and there've basically been two ways that this has happened. One is the domestic cat originated in the Middle East, part of the Africa and Asia, but in the last couple thousand years has spread throughout the world. And as cats have occurred in different places, they've changed. They've adapted to their conditions. That cats in very cold places tend to be stocky animals with long hair. Cats in very hot places have a more slender build and shorter hair. And those are just general natural selection adapting to where they live. Now, in addition, more recently, people have selectively bred cats to have particular characteristics, producing different breeds, just as has been done with dogs. And so that has produced a great variety of different types of cats, most of them differing in their color, how long their hair is, or how wavy their hair is, and so on, but also some differences in body proportions as well. What is it about the African wildcat and, and cats in general that made them become domesticated? Cats and dogs would have been drawn to humans, whereas most animals are wise enough to stay away from us. In this case, I think they took advantage of an opportunity that there's a part of the world in the Middle East called the Fertile Crescent. 
And it's where civilization really first began, where people settled down and started living in villages and growing growing crops. And so when they did that, about 10,000 years ago, of course, like any good farmer, they grew as much food as they could, and they stored the extra food in storage places for lean times. Big storage containers of seeds and so on attract rodents. And so the rat and mouse population exploded, and this was in the area that the African wildcat lived. And so some of those cats, the the ones that were, if we can anthropomorphize, that were bolder, more willing to enter a village, had a great resource opportunity, all this food just sitting there. And so the cats began, began hanging out in villages, eating the rodents. Now, in turn, the people saw that what they were doing and said, hey, this is a good thing. And so they were nice to the cats. Maybe they put out a little food. Maybe they let them into their little huts where it would be warm and dry. And again, the boldest of the cats, the ones that were most willing to be around people, took advantage of that. And so there was this back and forth, people being nice to the cats, the cats that were willing to be nice back, doing the best, getting the most food, passing on their genes to the next generation. And eventually we had the domestic cat happy to be found around us. In your article, you said that the common view that domestic cats are aloof loners couldn't be further from the truth. Please explain. That is a common misconception. And there certainly are many cats who seem that way. But when cats live in places where there are lots of cats living around, they actually form into social groups that are very friendly. So I'm talking about places like fishing villages, where the fisher people throw the scraps into a pile, and that, of course, attracts a lot of cats who start living there. Or in these days, in many places, people put out food for unknown cats, and there can be very large colonies of these cats. Well, in such situations, the cats form groups composed of related females. They might be mother and daughter, they might be sisters or cousins, but the, the cats, the females are all related to each other and they're extremely friendly. They will lie next to each other, they'll groom each other, they'll play with each other, they'll even nurse each other's kittens or even serve as a midwife during birth. So these are very social animals in this context. There's actually one other species of feline and only one other species that lives like that and that, of course, is the lion. And it's the same situation. Large populations of lions, because there's a lot of food on the African plains, and African lion prides are also composed of related females. And so, in fact, these groups of cats should be called prides because they're just like lions. We also have a feeling that, or we have a, a misconception that cats don't really attach to their humans, but they do, don't they? Oh, absolutely. Many cats will be very bonded with their humans, very much so. A lot depends on a cat on how it's raised, that it turns out that ages four to eight weeks are critical, that kittens that are handled by people, that are around by people, that have good interactions, can end up being very good pets, very attached animals, good around people. Cats who miss this window, a kitten out, feral kitten that never sees a person until it's 10 or 12 weeks of age, it's much harder to get them to, to be okay around people, and they usually don't end up being as affectionate or as bonded. What are some other misconceptions we have about cats? Another misconception is that you can't train a cat, and that is just flat wrong. Cats are very food-motivated, and so you can use that food to train them to do all kinds of things. For example, you can train a cat to use the toilet, amazingly enough. Now, it won't flush it, but it will do its business in the toilet, uh, which is, I've never succeeded myself, but it's great not to use kitty litter. And if you ever, if you ever want to see the amazing things, Google the Savitsky cats, these performing cats that do amazing tricks. So cats really are very trainable. 
Well, my cats have me trained, so I don't know about them. You know what they say, dogs have owners, cats have staff. Exactly. I have two cats, and the older one, who's 14 now, is very vocal. She's always, like, calling out for me. And then when I go in, they have the back of the house is all theirs. They never come out to the front because they they don't want to deal with the dog. So they stay in the back. But I go back to see them. And then as soon as I go back after she's been calling me, she goes, runs away. Is she just seeing if I'm going to react to her? Or what is that about? That is, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure. But I suspect that maybe that's worked for her in the past. If that's gotten your attention, gotten you to give her some food, they learn. They're very smart and they learn from experience. If something works, they'll keep doing it. It's funny because their reaction to the dog is... The older cat will tolerate the dog, just barely. The other one just runs and hides, wants nothing to do with her. And I, and I can't get them to interact. Love for them to be friends and buddies and so that the cats will come out of their back rooms. But Which did you have first? The cats. In my experience, it's much harder to introduce a dog to a house of cats than the other way around. That when the dog is first, particularly if it's a kitten, they can grow up to be good friends. It was interesting because when I got my first cat... I had a dog, and she very closely bonded with the dog to a point where she was absolutely in mourning when the other dog left us. And then I got her a little kitten buddy, thinking, okay, she needs some socialization in the house. And then after a while, I got the dog. You know, that's very interesting that they didn't generalize from their first experience with a dog. I think that's an interesting observation. If I can take a a tangent from that, One of the fascinating things about how dogs and cats interact, at least sometimes, is they learn to read each other's body language, even when the signals they use are different from their own species. And the best example of that is a tail moving back and forth, that when a dog does that, they're wagging their tails. It's a sign of happiness, of contentness. When a cat's tail is going back and forth, it's quite the opposite. It's, I'm a little nervous and scared here. Uh, I'm not sure what to do. But yet when they interact, they learn, they figure out what the signal means. They don't get confused. Or another thing dogs and cats do is when they greet each other, they will often touch noses. That's a cat thing. Dogs don't do that. But a dog living with a cat, they learn to do that at the appropriate time. So they really are both remarkably intelligent and adaptable creatures. It's fascinating. It's really interesting. I, I think I'm enjoying them more than I did my kids. But no, that's Uh, Just just kidding. If my kids are listening, that's not true. Cats interact differently with humans than dogs. And I've heard that's because cats have not been domesticated for as many generations as dogs have. So are we likely to see different cat behaviors evolve over generations? It's certainly possible that people have developed breeds with particular behaviors as they have with dogs. And it's just this is how evolution works. With When individuals with certain traits reproduce more, those traits can get passed to the next generation. And so if people try to create cats that are more content to live around people, it can work. So it's certainly possible that what you're suggesting will happen. There is, however, a catch to this. And that catch is this. Most cats that live in homes in the United States are neutered, so they are not reproducing. Most cats that come into a house are from unknown cat populations. People go out and rescue cats that are either kittens or mothers that give birth in the in the shelter. And so these cats are not ones that are being chosen through a selective breeding process. They're, these are the cats that are living out in the wild. And so it's not clear that those cats have traits that make them good 
good pets, as as happens when people are breeding cats intentionally. And so that's one reason why cat why your standard pet cat population may not be evolving to be friendlier. That's opposed, I should say, to breeders who breed to develop a breed. Now, they are controlling the breeding and they select the traits of the of the animals they want. But your standard household pets that aren't a pedigreed cat often come from, from unknown populations. Yes, I don't know where mine are from. And, and they, they speak another language. So uh, they obviously weren't raised in America. Even though- It's very inconsiderate of them. I have seen videos online of lions and tigers being very affectionate to their handlers and jumping up and hugging them and, and all this. Is it possible to breed the larger cats or to train the larger cats to be more domestic? I need to make a distinction here between domestication and taming. A tame animal is one that, because it's grown up around people, basically behaves in a way that they can get along with people. And there are many species of animals that if you raise them that way, they can live with people. And so this has been done to, I think, 14 different cat species. And mountain lions, for example, if you raise them in a very nice way, they are said to make very good pets. You can find some videos online of this. I'm definitely not recommending this, by the way. I'm just telling you, bad idea, but it does happen. So, and some people, less commonly these days, have done that with lions and tigers, and you've seen the videos. So it is possible to tame many species of cats. The difference is domestication is the process by which a species changes through time genetically, that it evolves. And so these are our populations that have have changed. And whereas a tame animal, you have a tame tiger, it's no different than a wild tiger except how it was raised. But a domesticated species has genetic differences that lead to traits that that make them better for living with us. I'm not aware that anyone has tried to domesticate, to breed lions or tigers for friendliness. In theory, it could work, but they're such big, dangerous animals that it's definitely not a good idea. Yes. I mean, we, we've definitely heard the stories of lions and tigers who could be affectionate one minute and then turn on their handler, yes. their keeper, whatever, and the next. There was something I remember growing up here in St. Louis. Someone had some tame leopards, and they would have a game where the man would go into the cage and the leopard would jump on the man's back and he would grab the paws and carry the cat around on his back. Well, one day that they did that, but the cat, you know, they have this dew claw, kind of their thumb. It accidentally slit the man's throat. Then his blood splattered all over the leopard and then the leopard, you know, that triggered its wild instincts. The cat was a tame cat, but this was an accident. And when you deal with a cat, an animal that strong, you don't want an accident to happen. How, how did cats and lizards get along? It depends who you ask. For the cats, they get along famously. They're yummy. Lizards, not so much. You write that cats use different meows to communicate different messages. What are those different meows and and what do they mean? This is really interesting research that's been done. People who live with cats know that the cat has different meows that it uses in different contexts. You know, I'm hungry. I want to go outside. I want to get out of this room. Stop brushing me the wrong way. So researchers actually recorded a, a bunch of cats in different contexts. So they they got all of their meows and then they played them to people and people couldn't figure out. They played this meow and said, which context was this? Was it hungry or affectionate or any of the other options? People were no better than guessing. With one exception, you play that sound to the person who lives with the cat and they were very good. says, oh, you know, Oliver wants to go outside or Bella is hungry. It turns out there is no universal cat language, no sound that they all make when they're hungry. But 
a cat and the person the cat lives with kind of negotiate an understanding. This is the sound that means I want to go outside, so on. And so they are very good at communicating to us, but we have to learn the language they're using. You talk about cats going outside. I interviewed a vet who had written a book on cats some years back, and he he said, no, never let your cats outside. He says, you know what outdoor cats are? I said, what? He said, Pray. This is this is true. There are many reasons not to let your cat outside, and one of them is there are dangerous animals that will kill and eat them. In much of the United States, coyotes are around, and coyotes definitely will eat cats, quite a lot of them. So that's one risk. The cats can also get diseases, and of course, they can get run over by cars. So it's dangerous. And then cats have an impact on the environment. They kill chipmunks and birds and so on. So there are lots of reasons to keep your cat inside if you can. Where I live, there's a problem with eagles and hawks. There have been stories of eagles and hawks swooping down into somebody's yard and taking away their cat or small dog. I've heard those things. I wonder how common that is in that an adult cat weighs 8, 10, even 12 pounds. You know, a big eagle perhaps could do that. I suspect most hawks, that's a little too big for them. But I'm sure it happens sometimes. Owls, too. Owls could be a problem. Big owls. Yeah, I'm not I'm not testing that with any of my cats. Even my dog. My dog is pretty large, but I'll even watch her when she's outside. Because especially at night, you never know what's lurking out there. This is true. Absolutely. But I think coyotes are the big problem in many places. In addition to the different meows, you said there are different purrs. Yes. How do you tell the difference between the purrs? Picture you're in the kitchen, you're opening a can of wet food, and your cat is rubbing against your legs and purring very loudly. They have this purr that is kind of a chainsaw sound, kind of broom, broom, broom. And it's very different from the sound that a contented cat will make sitting in your lap, you know, just being petted nicely. So there are these two different purrs that once you listen to them, you'll, you'll hear them. Some scientists studied those as well, and they could tell clearly these different purrs. And when they played them to other people, people could tell them apart. And then they did a, a fancy computer analysis to see what was the difference in the two purrs. And they found it had to do with just one part of the purr sound. That's all straight science. But then they said, well, this difference between the contentment purr and the what they called the solicitation purr, I want something purr, had a sound that was like a human baby crying. And they said, look, humans are innately attuned to that sound of babies crying. We are hardwired for that to catch our attention. And the cats have taken advantage of us to change their purr to incorporate that sound. Now, I have to tell you, I thought that was a little, I thought it was kind of ridiculous. You know, all right, I, I get that they're different, but really a baby cry embedded in the purr. And then I listened to the audio files they made available. And sure enough, if you listen to them, you can kind of hear a baby crying inside that insistent purr. It may well be true that they are, they have manipulated our attention to human babies to find a way to get attention when they really want it. I had a roommate in college who had a Siamese cat and the cat would always hang out outside of my room. My roommate would get up and he'd go off to work and I'd be there. And very often, if I was there with a date, the the cat would sit outside the room and make this sound like a baby crying, which made my date very uncomfortable. <laughs> That's funny. Well, you know, they're, they're smart animals. They try different stuff out and they find what works. Have they ever done a study as to why some of us are drawn to cats and some to dogs? First, I should say this. One of the things I found in researching my book, and this is a real shocker, is 
Don't believe everything you read on the internet. There is a lot of basically nonsense about why cats do this, why cats do that, and so on. And I think the lots of the crazy things they do, sitting in boxes, chasing laser points, we really don't know. So there are lots of interesting correlations between areas in which cats are more popular and areas where dogs are. Country, people out in the country tend to have dogs more than people in the city. Different parts, different states have different mixes of dogs and cats. It's a little hard to actually know why that is. What is about somebody as they grow up that makes them more prefer dogs or cats. I mean, my personal opinion, and it's just an opinion, is it's what you grow up with. I grew up with cats. I love cats. If you grew up with friendly dogs, you love dogs. But at a deeper level, we really don't know. We, we were never allowed to have a dog or a cat. The only time I experienced cats as a kid was my dad found a, a cat and its litter in the factory he managed, and he brought them home one weekend to make sure that they were fed and cared for. And that was my first observation of cats. But I always grew up thinking I didn't like cats until I got to a point several years ago with, with my first cat, when my, my daughter had just sent a text and said, oh, it, a workmate mother's cat just had a litter. I'm getting one. And she sent me a picture of them. I said, oh, could, does she have another? I said, I would like to bring, at that time I had a dog, I'd like to bring Cinnamon down to see if she'll get along with the cat and then maybe take the kitten. And she said, no, you want a cat? I'll bring you a cat. And she just brought me the kitten that night and I was, it was love at first sight. Fair enough. And you know, kittens are pretty darn adorable. Of course, so are puppies, but I've got a special soft spot for kittens. I've heard people say, oh yes, they're cute when they're kittens, but not when they're fully grown. And it's like, I don't find that. I find my full-grown cats are just as cute as they were when they were kittens. Well, I, I hear you on that. I agree with you. Tell us about your book, Cats Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa, and where can people get it? The book is about all the things we've been talking about, of the understanding where cats came from, how they were domesticated, how the African wildcat turned into the many different cats we have today, then why they do what they do, both in the house and when they're out and about, and then a little bit what the future may hold, how cats will change through time. And importantly, it's about how we know these things, what science has told us about these domestic cats. It was tremendous fun reading this book. And I can tell you, if it's not a fascinating read, it's entirely my fault because there is such fabulous material about our understanding of cats. So you can find the book online or at bookstores. It's just The Cat's Meow, and it should be there. Terrific. Is there any question you would like to answer that I haven't asked? One of the things that is very interesting is why aren't there bigger cats? You look at breeds of dogs, they range hugely in size from little Pekingese to St. Bernard's and so on. So this wasn't a question you'd like to, I'd like, we need to figure it out. Why are all cats more or less the same size. I mean, is it just that cat breeders have had uncommon good sense in not producing a St. Bernard-sized cat? I don't know. Maybe you could cross a Maine Coon with a Great Dane. That would be interesting. Actually, people have created some breeds by crossing domestic cats with wild species. There's this, a new breed called the Savannah that's crossed with a, a beautiful species called the Serval, and they actually are larger than Maine Coons. So I'm not saying this is a good thing, but it has happened. And so they have made cats that are a little bit bigger. Do those cats tend to be more wild in their behavior? Initially, they are. But what they do is they cross a domestic cat with a serval, and then they breed it back to a domestic cat 
generation after generation so that most of the wild genes are winnowed out. And so it's mostly domestic cat with just a little bit of serval heritage. And now you've been working with lizards all these years. Why have you not tried to bring back the dinosaurs? Who says I haven't? Oh, okay. Uh, well, that would be great. Wouldn't it be great <laughs> if we could get a T-Rex? I know, I saw Jurassic Park. It doesn't work out well, but... Jonathan, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. When you get around to figuring out why cats knock things off tables, let me know. I will keep you posted. Thanks so much for having me, Steve. This has been a lot of fun. My thanks to Jonathan Lossus for sharing his expertise and his love of cats. And thanks to my cats for their love, patience, and tolerance. Their presence has enriched my life beyond comprehension. And they wrote this ending. Now excuse me, I have to go. They are calling and I dare not keep them waiting. They will make me pay. If you liked this program, please like Life Slices on social media and subscribe wherever you find fine podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesleyan Studios. Music